Hi there. Welcome again to the Dish Cast. We have something very different this week, which is one of my old friends just talking about the world. I tried to start this properly, but the podcast started of its own accord as he came on, and we never actually formally so consider this the actual introduction to this podcast, this conversation with Jim Holt, um, the author of Stop Me If You've Heard This, Why the World Exists, and When Einstein Walked with Girdle, Excursions at the Edge of Thought. So here we go. <laughs> Enjoy. It's very different than our usual affair. You look great. I look fucking awesome. I mean, I'm working the muscle daddy thing, or it's being worked for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Have you noticed the, the 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 strange phenomenon of getting into your well mid to late fifties and the, the strange well, I'm, increase I'm in attention from twenty somethings? It's kind of bizarre. I've heard about that. I haven't I, I haven't experienced it yet. I, I do have a, a gaggle of very young friends. Yes, who will think uh, I'm Adolf Eichmann. And, and, no, I, mean, I find that very gratifying. I mean, I, ha- I have protégés like like Allard Lowenstein. One of them will probably kill me. But um, and they're all socialists, and they all hate your guts. <laughs> I know they are. It's a that's, long that's way fun. from the 1990s. Actually, they all hated my guts back then as well. Jim, mm-hmm. let me let are me ask start? you. No, we, we, we will be starting very shortly. I I, okay. I just want to. I don't like all this preliminary crap. I. I yeah, yeah, we'll get going. I just, I'm sorry. It's not even 2.30 yet. It's 2.26. So chill. <laughs> but um, I just want oh. to make sure, just want two things. I want you to tell me how you'd like me to introduce you. I mean, what's the, what's the, I I always remember your first book is Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing? But that was the original yeah. title and it ended up being called something else. Well, I, Why Does my, the World Exist? Right? That That's, was my that. first book. That my first book was called uh, Stop Me If You've Heard This. A history and philosophy of jokes. And it was translated into many languages, including German. And the jokes didn't really survive the translation into German. Um, I had to write long emails explaining each of them to the translator, and my heart would sink. So that was like, and then, then why does the world exist? Which has yes. been uh, uh, translated into 20 languages, Mandarin Chinese and basic Chinese, and was a bestseller and was actually the cause of a terrorist incident in Germany. But that's another matter. Very amusing television, the television news bit on that. But and then the last book is is I, I call it Einstein and the Beach, but it's oh, it's when Einstein walked with Girdle. 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 Hey, what, what was Girdle's first name? Uh, come on. What was what was Girdle's first name? Kurt. Kurt. Kurt Girdle. Yeah. Kurt Girdle. <laughs> so, so Einstein is walking with Kurt Girdle on the beach, and that prompts a, a, a disquisition from you on what themes? No, it's I, when Einstein walk on the, what they actually talked about when they walked together in Princeton, the Girdle was the only person there who had the nerve to engage Einstein because uh, you, you know who Girdle was, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. It, it, it would explain for our readers in case they're unaware well, are, and our listeners. Just part of it? I can't, I can't tell, are we... We've kind of started, I think, and I, I'm happy to keep going with this because okay. I can always begin by saying this is Jim Holden, ask you who, how okay. you want to be. In fact, that's a great way to start a, a podcast is asking you how you want to be introduced, and you've, you've taken it from there, and I don't want to okay. stop you. But no, I'm, I'm Kurt Girdle. Uh, uh, <laughs> remind our listeners who Kurt Girdle 
is, was. Who he was. Yes. He was an Austrian logician who proved the incompleteness of arithmetic, which was a, and arithmetic was thought to be the, the most secure and complete knowledge available to humans. And so he undermined uh, that idea. And, you know, it, it, Gödel's incompleteness theorems go along with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and Einstein uh, relativity as sort of the three great blows to epistemic certitude uh, in the 20th century. But he was quite crazy. He, he, was, he was invited to the White House by Gerald Ford, and he thought Ford was, was going to assassinate him. He actually starved himself to death in Princeton in 1977 or 78. He, he thought there was a universal plot afoot to poison him. So consequently, he would not eat any food or he starved to death. So he actually died, died of a paradox. But the famous Gödel sentence is he, he managed to translate, to, to make a, a, a proposition of number theory say, I am not provable. So he showed how self-reference was possible in the formalism of arithmetic. Um, anyway, but... And what did he and Einstein talk about that interests you? Time. The reality of time. On Einstein's uh, 55th birthday, I think, Gödel's gift to him was a solution to the field equations of general relativity, which involved a rotating universe that had closed time-like loops, meaning you could travel around in a, in a, in a big loop in space-time into your past. And if you could do that, time was no longer linear, it was circular, and there was no meaningful sense of past and future. Therefore, time did not properly exist. And so Gödel real, uh, uh, reasoned that if uh, time doesn't exist in a possible universe, it doesn't really exist in any universe. So they were quite obsessed with the unreality of time. And as you know, Einstein had this notion of a block universe where everything exists timelessly in a vast frozen you know, uh, uh, timescape. And so you're not moving inexorably towards your death. It certainly feels that way. Is this... For, for real or not? My, it's absolutely for real, and I'm fascinated. Okay, okay, good. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, and that, you know, here we are talking, and over there we're being born, and over there we're long dead, and men's kiss coexist uh, eternally. And this is the, you know, this rather mystical-sounding conception is ratified by the theory of uh, special and general relativity. So now I, I argue with friends. I have many friends, uh, philosophers, who believe and will quite vociferously assert that that image of time is wrong, that time is not an illusion. It genuinely passes. It genuinely has a direction. And this is something that we argue about. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. This is one of my intellectual preoccupations. Where do you, where do you, what point do you tend to make in these discussions against with your friends? What is the position oh. that you're defending that is the most controversial, the, the, the one you're most tenaciously attached to? that there's a deep symmetry between time and space. So I've, I've meaning that, let's see, I'm trying to make put, put this in the most interesting way that a layman would understand. The, the let's see. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna, if, you, if you're doing, if you're gonna do a book tour, you've got to get this down. This, is, this has nothing to do with the book. The book I'm writing on is, oh. is on kind of squishy feminine subjects, like how to live well. It's not, <laughs> it's, 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 it's high-minded self-help. Oh, it is? Well, they always sell really well. I'm sorry? They sell very well, the self-help books. 
my advance is predicated on this book selling well. It will not sell well. This is, if you heard the expression, there's nothing sadder than a bestseller that doesn't sell. <laughs> That's kind of what this book is shaping up to be. Uh, anyway, the, hold on a second. I should have something interesting to say about that. So the, there's a deep underlying, seemingly a contradiction between quantum theory and relativity theory. Quantum theory involves a notion of entanglement, which I won't explain, but you've probably heard about it. And the idea is that you can have two particles that are quantum entangled that can be opposite at opposite ends of the universe. And if a, a change in one will instantaneously affect a change in the other. So we have what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. This is the way quantum mechanics seems to work. Unfortunately, it's incompatible with special relativity, which says that changes are only propagated at a finite speed, the speed of light. So, so in the two pillars of our knowledge of the physical world, quantum theory on the one hand and special relativity on the other, there's this deep contradiction. And it so happens that physicists don't have to worry about it. They can do their calculations and the way it meshes together these contradictions never vitiate their calculations, but it's a real philosophical contradiction. And so this, this is one of the things that I and uh, a small community of about, I would say 50 uh, physicists and philosophers of physics over. And we get grants and fly to exotic places on the Riviera and the Canary Islands and so forth and go into windowless rooms <laughs> like, like nuclear bunkers and, and scream at each other and call each other crazy. So this shows that this, this Inquiry is not perhaps a mature one because most of the argumentation is calling each other insane. So it's, you know, right. it's metaphysics in a sort of scientific guise. But but it reassures a, me because I, I, I've, you know, been lulled into the belief that nothing serious intellectually is going on anymore, that it's all sort of subsumed into uh, critical theory, that there aren't any serious intellectual conversations, philosophical debates going on. Obviously, there are. And I'm obviously have a distorted view of reality. You, you, you think I've, you think I've gotten much too upset about wokeness. Well, you're, you're out of touch. You're like that guy, Harry Jaffa. You're, you're the Straussian. Who, uh, <laughs> Harry, come on. Harry, yeah. Harry Jaffa wrote, a friend of mine at the Times Book Review uh, commissioned Jaffa to review a book a few years before he died. This may have been 10 years ago. And Jaffa used the occasion fulminate against philosophy. He said philosophers are all relativists. They, they don't believe in consciousness and so forth. He got it exactly wrong. Philosophers today are all realists, not only in respect of the physical world, but they're realists about values. They're, they think that, you know, that, that a consciousness is something genuine that's not reducible to, to physical facts about the world and so forth. And so you know, all of the trends that you cite having to do with you know, once trendy European schools of thought like post-structuralism, you know, nothing to do with the way philosophy is conducted in the Anglophone world, you know, Australia, United States, Oxbridge, et cetera. And uh, yeah, these are really, really good. I mean, the problem is they, they don't, they're not the sorts of debates that sort of galvanize young questing, you know, adolescents or people of that mentality like yourself. They're, you know, they, they involve Kind of hard analytical work and and need to be conducted in a non-stone state of mind, which is probably <laughs> alien to you. Okay. Anyway, so enough about but enough about that nonsense. Um, so I'm, I'm just I'm interested in the people in these these darkened rooms. I, I'm guessing that they're almost entirely male. Am I wrong? Ninety percent, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I was I spent a year, a, a term rather, at the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute at Berkeley, and I would say that was that was probably ninety six percent male. There were, and the odd thing is, it was almost you you may know mathematicians their their great passions outside of math, mathematics are mu music is one of them. So the instant you know, what instrument do you play? And, and so you have to say, I like like the sackbutt. That's sort of the hecklephone. You have to say something that's so esoteric that they'll leave you alone. Do you know what a, what a, what a hecklephone is? No, I have no idea what that is. All right, well, we'll get to that later. But so Adolf Sachs invented the saxophone in the 19th century. And another guy named August Heckel invented the hecklephone. It's kind of like a saxophone, but not quite. And so I just think the name is cute. And it didn't catch on like the saxophone. But I've always tried to promote the hecklephone. And whenever I meet a composer of classical music, I say, don't write a violin concerto or piano concerto. Write a concerto for the hecklephone and you get some attention. <laughs> and so <laughs> then about, about 15 years ago at Lincoln Center, they, they actually put on a concert composed for the hecklephone over the years since it was invented. And I missed it. And it will never happen again. It's like missing Haley's comment. So I, <laughs> it grieves me greatly. Um, but this yeah. has to do with, basically, we're talking probably about people very much on the spectrum, right? Who were, who were talking about the meaning of time. And, uh, and they tend to be, people at that end of the very high sort of spectrum side tend, tend to be disproportionately male at the very tail of it. Right, right. I mean, the, you're talking about a very esoteric group of people here, right? I mean, how many human beings could engage or even understand a word that you were saying? I guess they, we could understand you calling each other mad. The, the pure mathematics community is huge. And actually, the the world center of pure mathematics is Paris, and the this Paris and, and Princeton. So, yes, there is a little bit. I mean, one of the prerequisites of mathematics is the ability to you know, it, it, to focus obsessively on a very abstract problem and think about nothing else for days on, you know, on, on end. And I, when I was a graduate student in mathematics, I started falling into that. I, I'm not very spectrum-y, but, but, but I, you know, I can go down that rabbit hole. And I was, you know, walking around trying to prove a theorem in group theory, and I couldn't think about anything else. And I, I, I would, Kind of mutter to myself, and I would, you know, I would make, you know, movements to try to give some tactual form to the abstract thoughts in my head. And I realized I was just, you know, looking like a nut. I would end up like <laughs> a unilocker. Uh, who actually had a PhD in mathematics from Harvard, as you know. And I, I yes. used that his dissertation. Anyway, so that's when I decided to decline into the profession of journal, which um, much more congenial set of people. They're not in touch with platonic truths the way mathematicians, <laughs> but I got to meet you. And I remember, by the way, I met you exactly three decades ago wow. when I had, I had sent in an article to the um, New Republic. You had just become editor. You were you were young, gay, British, and conservative, and, and a bit of a twink, I think. Yes, I, I have to concede. Yes. You transitioned to bear. I noticed that you started using Rogaine on your back. Instead of the <laughs> I thought, this is the transition from twink. So, and, and you came in with the admirable uh, objective of making the New Republic less earnest and more lively and more irreverent and more, perhaps more whimsical, we should say. Yes. And you published a great number of uh, very silly pieces. Uh, and when the silly, when, when your critics would enumerate these silly pieces, they always left mine out. I think mine were the silliest. They were, Camille Paglia always got top billing as the person you brought in to kind of stink up and ruin the New Republic. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I helped, and I wrote one on sleep. You did a cover story, which was a completely brilliant uh, well, piece I, of work. I, 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 I was it's unreadable. 
and a few others. And, and, and one on, on higher dimensions, which left everyone quite, it was meant to be amusing, but it was only perplexing. And, and one on, on what it's like to be dead. And these are all cover stories that you that you. Uh, and there was this wonderful, just for the sake of the headline, there's a piece you wrote about the Dalai Lama, which we were able to call Hello Dalai, which which was yeah. And I caught it from the the Buddhists and and Maura Moynihan, the senator's the late senator's daughter, wrote a, a very uh, angry letter in, and Indeed, I would, uh, I remember. Yeah, she was friends with with all the editors except you, Rick Hertzberg, and people like that. And I I you know I I incurred a lot of ignominy. I, I've got ignominy to burn. <laughs> so, but, but do you wanna, think that do you think journalism like, was more fun back then? Okay, because you, the, I, I realized at a point that you had gone too far. Though you had this idea of showcasing Charles Murray, Charles Murray and 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 Bernstein had just written the Bell Curve, and you had the brilliant idea of having a big cover piece kind of an excerpt from the book or a, a precy of the book, the, the most potentially toxic theses of the book. And then you would have all of the, you know, people like Leon Weaseltier and, and, and people like me, and I forget who else, about 20 people replying to it. So the impression it gave was this kind of uh, a giant of Charles, intellectual giant Charles Murray with this sort of powerful thesis backed by, you know, his powerful quantitative evidence. And all these little ideological pygmies, you know, kind of annoying his ankles in the commentaries. And so I thought, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't, it doesn't, it's not going to turn out. And I, indeed, it, I, I, I think that's probably the greatest blot on the scutcheon of your stewardship of the... Uh, I'm you sure have, you have, you have other thoughts about blots on my scutcheon. Yeah, maybe Betsy McCoy. And oh yeah, the, that was uh, a bad one. But that you helped, wasn't... You helped sink the uh, Hillary care. <laughs> yes, I know. Nice. Well, that I think was a mercy. However, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 the result. But there was, yeah, there, a plan drawn up by a committee of a thousand people, presided over by Ira Magazina. Ira Magazina. What yes. could be better than that? <laughs> but, but I just wanted. Since then, you've been, you, you've like a dog to his vomit. You've returned to this topic of of racial differences in IQ being explained by genetics and. Whenever I uh, drop your name at cocktail parties in New York, people tend to bring that up, and they and they they tell me I, I don't know this for a fact. You've 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 disappeared into the black hole of Substack. <laughs> so I, I've been reading you as uh, as faithfully as I ought to. But I gather that this, this is still a, um, a sort of a lively interest of yours. Is is that the case? And 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 how is your thinking? I don't know if you want to talk about this, but. I'd be curious. No, I don't want to talk about this. To be yeah, but, 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 but no, I'm just. I'm, it seems to me that although I, I agree with you that the Murray and Hernstein book was you know made a very interesting and strong scientific case, and it was unfair to sort of tar it with a brush of, of, of racist pseudoscience. It's a fundamentally unsound case, and I, 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 I don't know if we want to confront that now. We probably want to just <laughs> move on to something more. Uh, more frivolous, perhaps. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, let's let's tackle the uh, the easy question first. Let's talk about race and IQ on a podcast. <laughs> oh, Jesus Lord! No, no. I mean, so there are a couple of propositions that there is a um, sort of an essence of intelligence, which uh, is conventionally called G. Uh, G is it's a mathematical construct that uh, arises from factor analysis, and the it's meant to explain a wide range of cognitive abilities. So it's sort of the, you know, it's the underlying horsepower 
of intelligence. Okay, so is it a mathematical artifact? No, it actually explains quite a lot of a person's ability to function cognitively. Then you ask, does it, is it physically real? Well, yes, it kind of is because people with um, higher G or higher IQ have, you know, tend to have bigger brains. Uh, there's more electrochemical uh, activity in their brains and so forth. So it does have real physical correlates. And the next question you ask, is it genetic? Is it genetically determined? Well, in part, yes. It's maybe 50%. The variation in it is maybe 50% genetically determined. All of those propositions are fine. And then, of course, Murray and Hernstein moved on to the, 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 the incendiary proposition that the, 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 the average measured difference in racial IQ between, say, whites, European-Americans, and African-Americans is due to a genetic difference in the races. And that's, and, and I wasn't clear, you know, even Murray and Hernstein were a little bit agnostic about that. They said, it's not clear whether it's genetically, the racial differences are genetically based or not, but regardless, it's very different to, to, to close that gap. And, and I wasn't clear exactly where I, by the way, I wrote, instead of contributing to your issue, I wrote a um, op-ed column, the first op-ed column about this in the New York Times. And for about Four weeks of my life, I was famous. I was on William Buckley's show twice, and I was on. I was interviewed by Tom Brokaw on the NBC Nightly News and so forth. And and and, and what I'm most proud of, I was denounced by Gordon Liddy. Oh, that's yeah. always a, a career yeah, plus. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and anyway, and and I when I went on uh, firing line against Charles Murray, you predicted he would make mincemeat of me, and he did. But that's because he's good on TV, and I'm not. But anyway, so, so I, I've, I've been babbling on now for about 15 paragraphs. Respond to this. Well, I don't think to respond to. I'm just fascinated. I mean, obviously, we do seem to have consistent differing outcomes for different groups in our society. Let's, let's like Asian Americans, even though that's a very broad and weird category. But the resilience of this stuff is not really in dispute in, in as much as the actual data showing these differences are not invented and so on and so forth. The question simply is, why? And I am simply agnostic about that. It's almost certainly hugely cultural and environmental, but it's the idea that there's nothing beyond that. And in fact, that all... all it's not genetic. Let me, let me just... The, oh, the, sorry, sorry. Let's take... In, in some ways, all I am saying is that I don't believe or I can't be made to believe that Ibram Kendi is correct, that, that every racial disparity is a function of a racist system as opposed to a variety or an endless number of con possible contributing factors. That's all. That's, that's my only position, which is that I'm agnostic about that. And I think if you believe that, if you really are a blank slater like that, mm -hmm. then you're not dealing with reality and you're going to have to kind of force reality to make it fit what you want it to be and that's never a good thing. The government has much too much power in that sense. I mean, and, and I think if you are being forced into that position as the only position to have, that everything is a function of white supremacy and there are no other factors like, like culture, family, structure, all these other potentially contributing factors, as well as historic discrimination. Of course, I'm not excluding any of that. I can say all of that is true. But it's complicated, and maybe we don't want to think about this. But the trouble is, we are thinking about it. We have to have a position on, for example, SATs. We have to have a, a question of, is the fact that there is 
more people of this race than other. There are more Asian Americans going into certain areas of life. And I think it's more interesting in a way to talk about the Asian American and, and white American kind of difference, because that's as resilient as anything else. And, and, it, and, and it helps take this away from the toxic area because it's just an empirical question for me. And, it, and I don't think it's answered. I absolutely don't think it's answered. I don't, it may not be answerable. And I'm also completely open to the possibility it shouldn't ever really be debated. I do, and to be honest, I don't bring it up. People bring it up to me for something I did 30, what, okay, how, okay. 25 years ago. I'm not writing whole new columns about this. I, it's it's okay. not something that's, I'm sorry. but I, I have to, but I if, I, just... if I'm asked to go on any show to talk about anything, I have to clear this particular bound barrier okay. first. I was, I was, as, as I, I was misinformed. I, I, I thought that was a, a sort of a, a continuing. Um, uh, no, I'm just not prepared to say okay, okay, it okay, can't okay, possibly okay. be true. Fair I mean, on. it's completely insane to think right. this and it is only a function of absolute pathological racism that anyone would even inquire into this. And, and that's, right. that's all I'm saying. And right. I, I know you're not allowed to say that. I just don't know how else to say what I, what I find to be verifiable and, and, right. And and I don't know, but I'm prepared to say I don't know. Now, why am I wrong, Jim? What am I wrong I about? I, I, uh, and are I, you prepared to be as stigmatized I, as me? Everything you said was was close to irreproachable. I just wanted to offer a few. I, you know, th this is worth looking into. Th this, as you say, persistent average racial differences, IQ differences between racial groups, and there are a lot of biological hypotheses that have nothing to do with genetic differences between the races. One of the most obvious is that it just if we're talking about the uh, black-white difference, that uh, black mothers are much less uh, likely to breastfeed their their babies. It's the, the breastfeeding rate is, is one sixth of that of whites, and there's a very strong correlation between being breastfed results in uh, on average in about ten extra IQ points. They're less likely to make eye, they, they make less eye contact with their babies and talk to them less. They're more likely to have low birth weight babies and premature babies. And so all of these can, can easily be seen as a legacy of slavery. I mean, you know, slavery is not that many generations in the past. And, and you know, in these uh, sort of behavioral patterns propagate themselves over generations. And the other, so the other factor that you're familiar with is, the, is of course, the Flynn effect. Murray and Hernstein claim that, you know, whatever the determinants of IQ are, whether they're genetic or environmental, they're hard to budge. And yet, every 10 years, the average IQ goes up three points. So it goes up a, a full standard deviation in, in that, let's see, three, uh, uh, yeah, in, 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 a, in two generations, it goes up a standard deviation. So that means that the the measured gap between blacks and whites today is the same as the gap between whites today and whites of my grandfather's generation. Yeah. And so this shows you, and no one knows why this, there's, the, the, this is called the Flynn effect. The, the, and by the way, this pertains there to the- There is some argument, I think, recently- that are most G-loaded, that are thought to be most genetic, like the ability to rotate geometrical forms in your imagination and see if they're congruent. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you jump in. No, so, I, I didn't yeah, want so to. I, in my I, case, I just think that, you know, these are the facts. All that these things are true. All these things are true. And yeah. also, it also is true that the distinction between biology and, and, and culture and inherited practices 
through history is all very complicated. And, and the, the, there are no simple ways in which you can extrapolate. So it's a mess. And in some ways, it's best not to talk about it. But insofar, and I don't really, and I don't want to. Okay, so, but insofar as the prevailing ethos today throughout all of establishment America is the insistence that any racial outcomes that are not proportional to the demography is proof of racism. That seems to me to be a salient factor in the formulation of public policy that we have to debate. And for those of us who are saying, well, I'm this, this, it's, this is far too crude. It's ridiculously crude. And simply rigging stuff so that you make the proportions fit is not really an answer to this. And that's where we are at, I think. And it's just, if, if the, the, the certain people pushing up in the ante on one side, and you're just saying, hold on a minute, maybe it's more complicated than that. That's, that's the only yeah, position yeah. I've taken. Did you know that basketball in its um, early decades was considered to be <clears throat> a Jewish sport? <laughs> yes. Because it, the Jews dominated because basketball was played in the inner city. And in the early decades of basketball's existence, the inner city yeah. was a, you know, a Jewish ghetto. And so anyway. The interaction of not to sound like Kimberly Crenshaw, but the, the interaction of class and race and history, of course, is incredibly complicated. And uh, is, that, talking, is that intersectionality? That That's like hermeneutics. I always, I, I never quite know what it means. I always, I, I, you can't even look it up. Um, well, wait, does that satisfy you that I'm not what your your younger friends think of as Adolf Eichmann? Is it, 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 that, that I'm simply curious about some of this and I certainly don't buy the current orthodoxy. And, and I'm prepared to say, I just don't buy it. And right. when you say you don't buy that, then you're immediately called a eugenicist or something. Right. And, and, and it's just not true. It's no, just I, that I, the, no, the world is complicated. And, and the idea that biology, this is the same thing with, I know you don't do transgender stuff, but the same thing to do with, with that. These are important questions and a certain kind of view of the world is being imposed in which nature itself, or the complexity of of human nature is is being denied or suppressed. And I think it's important to say, you know, up to a point, Lord Copper, as it were. Um, yes, you're right. But but let's not take this too far. And there are other questions here. But anyway, the reason uh, I talk let's 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 move let's let's move on from that because we I think we've hashed it out. I I, I I've even got some kind of absolution from you, I think. Well I I I I uh, adduce those facts earlier simply to give your listeners some intellectual ammunition to push back in a dinner party argument. <laughs> and and, and I, those are very useful. I, I think you know you can use those data points to undermine the Murray-Hernstein case, which I think is, a, is it, it's, it's a... Well, it's again, a, I think so the Murray-Hernstein case has been a little misrepresented in many cases. I think you would agree. And it's it certainly allows for a large influence of the environment and all sorts of other things in terms of the, 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 and it's, and again, for people who haven't read it, the bell curve is 90% about class and the dangers of slowly separating elite class from a, 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 a low, less, a low, a, a cognitive elite, basically. Mm, yeah. And that's, that was its core concern. But let's, Talking about the old days and, and writing and, and controversy and all these things that I did to ruin the New Republic. Let's, we, we, it's 20 years since Hitchens died, right? That's our mutual friend. Is that ten true? Years. Just ten, ten, years. 10 years. Yeah. God, it just feels like 20. And, and only um, 
four years since John McLaughlin died. <laughs> I was the last person to watch John McLaughlin, by the way. The McLaughlin Report? McLaughlin Report. Yeah, the McLaughlin Group. Yeah, yeah. Morton, you have but, stumbled across the truth once again, Morton. Or when he had Morton Kondracki yes. and Mort Zuckerman on the same program, which frequently happened, he would say, more to the left of me, more to the right of me. I am mortified. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> he would also say. By the way, when I first when when I when I met you after I that my first piece in the New Republic, and you came to New York, and you stopped, you were on your way to Fire Island, probably, and you stopped off to see me, and I was so excited. I thought, I'm meeting a guy who knows Morton Kondrak. <laughs> meet Morton Kondrak, who's a big and he knows Fred Barnes, and they they kind of disappeared into into the Fox News world. They underwent what you call the neocon, neocon slide. Did you come up with that term or did I? Remember we used to talk neocon about slide? It. Yeah. I think you did, but I, I noticed that it was a, it's actually almost a clinical syndrome that people who, who, who begin as socialists and move towards conservatism, and then they keep going past the bounds of sanity and become quite literally insane. And Which is sort of the story of the entire Republican Party at this point, right? Oh, I, um, but its trajectory is on no no known ideological space. I, I, I uh, have you not seen that happening also recently on the the other way around? In the sort of various neocons have now moved to be on MSNBC and are then fast adopting uh, all sorts of philosophies and of of the far left. And 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 that also is true. That there's it seems in the culture right now that. The ability to stay where you are without being sucked massively to one pole or another is it's just really hard psychologically, I think. I don't I I can't bring myself to watch MSNBC because it has the that harsh tone of propaganda. It's it, it makes me cringe the way moveon.org emails in my inbox used to make me cringe. Um I I'm a McGovern Democrat, but I I I I I could I don't think it would have been terrible if Romney and 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 who is his running mate, the guy with the good hair, Romney. Paul uh, Ryan. Paul Ryan. It, it would not have been a tragedy at all if they had won in, in, in 2000 and that was 2012, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think I think the the Dole Kemp ticket in uh, 96 was not a bad ticket. Yeah, because I, <laughs> okay. Clint- I thought Clinton was yeah. clearly headed for an ethical collapse. I mean, I, I, I just yeah. thought there was a level at which his dishonesty was sort of Boris Johnson level. And right. there came a point at which I thought we're asking for it. But his oh, second he's going to ask for it. Yeah. But his second term was in no way disastrous. It no, was it was great. great. It was fine. It was yeah, absolutely fine. Prosperity, as, yes. as James Carville reminded us. And yes. Americans didn't vote for Gore because they didn't know which they liked better, the peace or the prosperity. So they voted for Bush. And of course, getting back to Christopher, our, our mutual yes. friend, Christopher Hitchens, he in 2000 was one of the fools who endorsed Ralph Nader. And then he endorsed Bush in 2004, both very, very bad choices, which goes to a theme that we've discussed. Despite Hitchens' kind of preternatural brilliance and, and preternatural ability to speak just to produce beautiful verbiage, you know, kind of a mixture of Oscar Wilde and Edmund Burke. He was wrong on every, almost every major issue where he t- took a public stance and had influence with maybe one or two exceptions. But well, let us revisit those, those errors. Well, 
there were two Gulf Wars, right? There was the one under George H.W. Bush, and then there was one under his son. Now, Arthur Schlesinger was opposed to the first one and opposed to the second one. Most people were opposed, were in favor of the first Gulf War because that was to get Saddam out of Kuwait. Some people were in favor of both. Fine. Hitchens was opposed to the first Gulf War, but a great cheerleader for the second. That's the only logically impossible position that he managed to do. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Um, and uh, he was wrong about, uh, uh, you may disagree with me about this, but he was wrong on the um, Clinton impeachment matter. Yes, no, um, I, I, I agree with you. To, I think he was wrong to, 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 to introduce his friend, uh, Sidney Blumenthal, in an effort at the, you know, to, to revive the case against Clinton that the House managers were prosecuting, and I, I and I, I remember I, was, I I don't know you I you and I share a visceral dislike of both of the Clintons, I believe. I yeah. my reason is you know David Brinkley's reason. The man, you know, he has no ideas in his head, so he's a bore, and he's always going to be a bore. He also really has no sense of humor, and but I mean those are. You know, he was fine was, as a president, and I opposed his impeachment. Okay. Um, okay. But you okay. could you could have imposed you could have the thing this is Hitchens too you could have you could have accepted that Clinton Bill Clinton was a sleazeball of sort of massive proportions a liar all the rest of it but still okay as president you know it's you don't yeah, have yeah. to fucking impeach the guy and certainly right, right. not lying about blowjobs I mean the, the perjury stuff was insane and it trivialized it trivialized impeachment and destroyed. <laughs> The Republican credibility on it. Why are you laughing? Why? Because I'm thinking of Larry David saying he got a blowjob from a Jewess and he thought he was getting away with it. <laughs> blowjob from a Jewess and he didn't thought he'd get away scot free. Hitchens <laughs> 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 and, and his wife and I had dinner in San Francisco in the year 2000, I think. And and I said, you know, Christopher, remind me why Clinton should have been impeached. And he began laying out the case again. And I said, but on the grounds that you think Clinton should have been impeached, all of his predecessors and all of his successors should have been impeached. And he says, yes, they should have been impeached. And I said, well, that's a parliamentary system. That's not the kind of system we have here. But so, I, you know, to put this in context, he thought that all, I mean, you know, of course, he thought Johnson should have been impeached. He thought not, maybe not Carter, but all of the others should have been impeached and convicted. So, yeah. Was he, and, was he at some point, there was something incredibly serious about him. I mean, th- these were passionate moral positions that he took. And yet at the same time, it seemed as if it was a performance. And sometimes the performance seemed to be more salient than the, the conviction. Mm-hmm. And I always have to say, and this is highly controversial, and uh, this is, you know, we're talking about it, someone we both cared about a lot and, 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 and whose skills are, but I actually don't think by the standards of his own idol, Orwell, he was that good a writer. I mean, I, I actually think it was hard to make sense of a lot of what he wrote. And a lot of it was very <laughs> sort of weaselterian in its, in its, its opacity and its, and it's 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 flourishes in ways that just felt like he was putting you on a little bit. Mm, um, he was, you know, what what really animated him was the idea of international solidarity with with brave socialist figures in other countries. I mean, that's when you know he at some point the National Geographic uh, 
commissioned him to do a big piece on the Kurds, on Kurdish communities all over the world. And <clears throat> that's he he went to Iraq and he actually found Kurds in the you know in the in the in the Cezanne arrondissement of Paris and spent a lot of time there. And but but when he was in Iraq, he 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 met Kurdish socialists and Marxists and formed a real emotional you know bond of solidarity with them. And and you know this and you know ditto in in the Balkans. And this is what you know explains his his you know his passion about the the the, the second Gulf War and about the need for regime regime change. Yeah, so it's this romantic ideal of international solidarity and complete indifference to policy issues. I mean, one of his most sort of mocking references would be, you know, prescription drugs for seniors. And so, you know, nothing could be more ridiculous and nothing could be more <laughs> uninteresting. Uh, and, um, and, you, know, those you, the, you, 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 you obviously feel strongly about prescription drugs for seniors at this point. We all do. No, but I know. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't take any. I, 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 and, I, I don't have a cell phone, and I don't take any prescription drugs. But I, I don't. I mean, I know those things are important, and that I wish there were a magazine right. where policy issues like that would be analytically laid out, and that doesn't seem to exist. But, but so yeah, the so Hitchens, you're, you made the point that to an extent it was performance art, and that might apply most obviously to his late career anti-God tub thumping where right. he went on the road and he would, you know, he would go through the American South and he would, he would debate these local articulate rubes and, and, you know, and vanquish them. And the young people in the audience who had been brought up in, you know, oppressive religious households and were rebelling against their parents, they saw this guy who was really, you know, just the epitome of verbal style, you know, deflating these people, puncturing them and, 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 and Hitchens became the cult of Hitchens grew up out of that. Unfortunately, that's, you know, intellectually, that's a, a purely 19th century phenomenon, right? I mean, all of those <laughs> debates have been pretty much settled everywhere except in the American Bible Belt. And so that struck me as a great waste of uh, Christopher's intellectual or you know, gifts, which were in, in great measure rhetorical gifts, not analytical gifts. I mean, one what about thing what about his sense of humor? When it was, it flowed organically from the situation. It was marvelous. I remember one, a, a reporter from New York Magazine, say, uh, was going to write a profile of him. So she went down to Washington and um, was told to come to the apartment in the Witness of the Wyoming, that lovely building overlooking the Russian um, consulate. And the floor below Hitchens was occupied by the CIA. Uh, who were spying on the Russian anyway. And so the the young reporter shows up there and she's told to come at 11.30 a.m. morning. And and Hitch opens the door and he's got a big glass of Johnny Walker. He says, oh, I, I started without you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But but a couple of times he tried to do stand-up comedy. He did he did this at the Hey on, on Why Festival once. Good Lord, really? It was That's... pretty painful. Pretty painful. He had he had, he tells long kind of shaggy dog jokes, and and he'll take a perfectly good simple joke and embellish it with lots of Hitchensian flourishes and, and and filigrees, and just ruin it. And then a lot of the jokes that he was quite proud of in print 
were were terrible failures. One that I, I uh, was discussing this with with Martin Amos, who of course was Christopher's greatest friend. And the the the, the, the one that we stuck in our mind was Hitchens' joke about the Catholic Church and the sex abuse scandal: "No child's behind left." Right, and he was very proud of that. And, and oh, Martin God. said, well, "Like how could?" Uh, Oh, and also the joke about Jerry Falwell, that if after you, Jerry Falwell died, he said, go ahead, I'm If sorry. you gave him an enema, you, you could bury him in a matchbox? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I did find that funny at the time. I mean, okay. that okay. he said it to Sean okay. Hannity was, you know, are. just added to the... But no one says anything like that on cable news anymore, certainly not in a way that would challenge the people who are interviewing them. You know, th there's a certain amount of, of brio there, of fuck it all. Let's not care. How do you do you think? I think you'd be going nuts in the current climate. By the way, I was um, I was reading a um, review of a biography of Edward Said, who of course was a friend and well, well a, a a a friend had been a friend and 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 comrade of Chris Christopher's, but then they, they had a falling out. Yes, short before Edward Said died, and the the review mentioned that Edward Said couldn't stand to be called Ed, and I thought, oh, I just read. A book about Susan Sontag called *Sempre Susan* by Ingrid Nunez, the novelist, and she said that that Sontag would sort of visibly, sort of, with, with the, you know, her, you could see the hackles raised, and when when people would call her Sue, and Christopher, of course, hated being called Chris, and and, and he was once on Chris Matthews, I think, with with Joan. Is it Joan Walsh? Yes, a salon. Uh, yeah, and they were they, they were in opposite studio. They were in different studios, and so they were all on the screen together with 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 Matthews. And and, and at one point, he she she said, "Now, well, well, look, Chris," and 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 Hitchens said, "Don't call me Chris." And she said, "Well, I was actually addressing our host, Chris Matthews." <laughs> that was one of the. It, it's rare to see. I mean, he was so good at what he did that he was he was never deflated or vanquished on very rare occasions. And one time I did, I, I deflated him, and then I'll shut up. We were, he sent me, you know, W.H. Auden wrote a poem called The, the, the Platonic Blowjob. Yes. Yeah. An and, amazing and, poem. Well, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, I would nominate it for the Literary Review Bad Sex Award. Um, but, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Anyways, it was a long time ago since long, I read it. It's a long blowjob. I mean, a long poem. It is it's a long a, poem. It's, it's yeah. a pretty satisfying blowjob. I, I, it, it goes on for ever. Yeah, but... I, yeah, yeah, I would say it's sort of anti-aphrodisiac. However, Hitchens had a private edition of this. You probably have seen it, a, a yes. little kind of chat book, and, and yes. he had it sent to me. And, and we were talking on the phone after I'd received it. I had never read this poem. And, and, and he said, you know, wh why, do you, why do you think he titled it the platonic blowjob? And Christopher was obviously thinking of platonic as the contrary of sexual. And I said, well, clearly, because this is the ideal blowjob in platonic heaven. And that hadn't occurred to him. And so he had used the vulgar, I mean, the, 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 you know, the common interpretation of platonic with a small p is, you know, we had a platonic relationship. We didn't fuck, right? And, and had overlooked the, the more highbrow interpretation, which of course was the obvious one. And so he kind of went soggy like a wet meringue just for a second. And he rose up again and smote me. <laughs> yes, it was it was as if he couldn't like for example he would constantly tease me about being catholic and he, he, he after the sex abuse crisis and I took some time out from the church because I just couldn't I couldn't 
bear it. He was so excited. He was like, so I hear you've given up Mother Church. He was just completely psyched as if it was some sort of, and I was like, you know, well, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm just in a difficult position as any Catholic was at the time and still is in terms of the institution of the church. But he was not, it, he could argue all the obvious idiocies of religion, but never really engaged its deepest reality or what it actually what it actually provides. One of the most haunting things I n knew about is uh, he was finishing a review the day he died, and he was still trying to get something published. And I don't know why, even though that that could be seen as a heroic act, and I think it was a heroic act. At the same time, you're not actually taking time to consider mortality uh, the, the whole scale of things the 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 universe i mean it, it there seemed to be a, a real refusal to engage at that level at all you know what his last words were no really i don't think so maybe maybe i forgot That's capitalism downfall no so clearly i mean his brain how do you know that some old circuitry was re reignited i mean i don't i don't think his his final thoughts were about you know whether the marxian theory of history was correct <laughs> it's, you know you, god knows what but, but, but i think uh, there was also a very english i think mean, i sort of recognize it as an english anti-catholicism that a lot of the religious stuff was really anti-clericalism at least a lot of the arguments were really making fun of absurd religious authorities which which of course is is true. It doesn't actually address the core questions of religion. There's a sort of English mockery of anyone taking the supernatural seriously. There's an English right. disdain for highfalutin existential crises. That's something the French do. And I think he always had that sort of empiricist, sort of Samuel Johnson kind of dismissal of, of, of well, the, Johnson's right. religious views are obviously very different. But, but do, do you know what I'm saying in terms of that kind of English flavor to his, yeah, his writing I mean, and his perspective? His 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 literary hero and and the model he aspired to most stylistically was I don't think it was Orwell it was actually Evelyn Waugh who was more Catholic than the Pope and if you you can see I I've read all of Evelyn Waugh's novels you know many I've many times I've read you know Brideshead Revisited a dozen times I've read Decline and so I I know all the language and I I've read them. I've read two of them in French translation, just because that's a fun thing to do, to read a novel you know well in a language that you know a little bit. And you you see in Christopher's own writings, which I've, I've, I've just canvassed all six collected volumes of his of his essays in the last year, the echoes of, of the most Catholic bits of Waugh's novels everywhere. And I remember when the Brides had revisited, of course, it was dramatized by the BBC in a 12-part series in the 1980s, starring Jeremy Irons and somebody else. And then uh, it, a movie was made of it in the around 2000, maybe in the late 90s or maybe the early 2000s. And uh, I was talking to Christopher on the phone and I said, what did you think of The Bride's Head? Have you seen it? And he, and he said, he said, didn't like it at all. And I, and I said, well, what, why didn't I not? He said, I, he said well, it was actually, I, he said it was gratuitously anti-Catholic. He said it. And I, and I have to pay a price to say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> make of that what you will. But I think, I mean, the, you know, Waugh was, as a an English Catholic, was a great contrarian. And, you know, th that was probably 
the strongest impulse in Christopher to be a contrarian. And I think he carried it too far and saw contrarianism not as a, a stance one might have to take vis-a-vis the truth. But, but I mean, it, it's, it shouldn't be your modus operandi. Uh, right. Sometimes the obvious truth is really true. Hitchens hated the idea that, you know, when someone would say, well, as usual, the truth lies between the two extremes. No, it's always at one extreme or the other. <laughs> There or, was that impatience. With, way, it's the Aufhebung of the, uh, it's the dialectical overcoming of this. Yeah. No, anyway. But, you know, he said. The other time, writer I think that's sort of important for him is Woodhouse. Woodhouse. As a stylist, he, he revered Woodhouse, I think, as a humorist. How do you, what do you think of Woodhouse as, 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 as sort of a humor, as, as maybe one of the finest humorists of, of all time? Oddly enough, after reading Woodhouse over and over and over again, particularly the, the two greatest novels are Joy in the Morning, which was called uh, Jeeves in the Morning in the American edition, and the and the one about Roderick Spode, The Code of the Worcesters. Woodhouse wrote both of those novels when he was at the peak of his powers in the uh, mid-1930s. And that's when the language, and it really does get Shakespearean. And it, you know, it very, actually, uh, someone like Malcolm Mugridge said, my heliotrope pajamas with the old gold stripe. That was, you know, as great as anything Shakespeare wrote. That was obviously my cadences weren't very good in, in, in repeating it just now. However, I, I so yeah, so I would always go, I remember Christopher repeating bits from the Code of the Worcesters in a bar with me, you know, and, and just being, going into paroxysms of laughter. I've never seen him so consumed with laughter. I mean, you know, it really hit his, his G-spot. And, and, you know, it should hit everyone. But oddly, when I tried to reread Woodhouse during the pandemic, it didn't, you know, it, 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 my, my circuits didn't light up. And I felt, I, I don't want to traverse this yet again. Whereas Waugh has such a more, Evelyn Waugh had such a more versatile prose style. And he could write with, with just this marvelous, Augustine simplicity that heightened the humor. He could write in a more ornate, rhetorical manner, and you know, a, a much more versatile. The great prose stylist of the 20th century, I think. And I and you don't see much of Woodhouse and Hitchens' own writing, which is a mercy because when people imitate the master, it's just you know, it's painful. Yes, um, it is. But but the, but the 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 Waffian rhythms are very much there in Christopher's prose, and and they're very much the best ones. But you're right. I mean the. The Orwell, you know, in many ways, Christopher was the anti-Orwell because he had a much more casual relationship to the truth than than, than Orwell, I think. I mean, the but I, yeah, anyway, I, I, I won't go well, into examples it's, it's, of that because I can't, I'm not completely sure they're right. And I, I don't want to uh, asperse his memory because... He, he was, uh, you know, I, I was very privileged to to know the man. And, and, and I know that you feel the same way. I do. And did he ever try to jump on your bones? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, this was a constant. It was a con- I'm not even hot. <laughs> it was a constant tease, essentially. I mean, it was a pose yeah. that he, and he would, he would give me a kiss on the lips where he'd say, come on, darling. I mean, there was all that stuff. He, yeah. he had that old sort of English public schoolboy attitude towards. And he insisted, of course, that he and Amos was some kind of, had some kind of homo-social, homoerotic is, but I never bought. I, yeah. He struck me as Martin, the strangest is, guy I'd ever met. Heterosexual. Say what? Martin is yeah. One, Martin is one hundred percent heterosexual. Yes, um, it's and, impossible to read a sentence he writes without realizing that. <laughs> Pretty that close. He, that Christopher was one of the rare 
uh, specimens of 50% straight, 50% gay. Uh, you think? That's what Martin said. Really? And, and Christopher, of course, called Martin, who was who had lighter hair as a as a young as a adolescent and, and a young man. And he's Christopher said the only blonde I've ever loved. Anyway, well, have we done that to death? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the other. I was thinking of the other writer that I found that the, that makes me actually kind of incapacitated with laughter. And in fact, the one book apart from Woodhouse that did that to me was um, J.R. Ackerley, uh, My Dog Tulip, which hmm. is just one of those British that the writing of it is so dry and the facts yeah. of it are so comedic that you that that contrast between high and low is constantly pursued. Ackley was such a highbrow person, and yet also such a kind of, I mean, bringing up this German shepherd and trying to get it bred. I mean, it, it I well, guess. It was it a bit passively, right? I mean, it was trying, it's almost impossible to get dogs to, to, to have, you know, conjugal relations, apparently. You'd think yes. that it would come naturally to them. They'll hump anything except a, you know, a fertile bitch. Of the uh, same of the same breed, same <laughs> seems absolutely impossible for them. Yeah, God, I, 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 I don't recall laughing out loud much reading my dog Tulip, but I appreciated the. Is there anybody today that you read to laugh out loud? Certainly not. Not novelists. Are there? What uh, makes you laugh I, today? I what comedy makes you laugh today? I mean, you, that's this is one of your. Who's making the best jokes? Are you worried about the future of humor? I would I would say I the first three seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I watched when they were when it was in a more naturalist naturalistic vein. The later seasons make me cringe, but and I don't understand people who found Larry the Larry David character, which is just a heightened version of the actual man, apparently, to be loathsome or despicable. He was a man with very strong ethical principles that were often pertain to what seemed to be trivial aspects of life, but were important to him. And he would prosecute them with great moral fervor. And I, that seems totally applicable to them. Clearly, oh, clearly, clearly, there's a certain amount of, <laughs> of, of, of a sense that, you're, that he's channeling parts of you as well, I would think. Yes, my partner, John McMillan, his frequent rebuke, rebuke to me is, Jim, nobody knows your rules. <laughs> That's exactly very David. Give me, give me, give me one of those rules. What are your rules? Oh, oh no! Um, uh, they're, Come on, I mean, they, yes. they were real, with real. You brought it up. Domesticity. There's a very precise way of allowing dishes to dry in this, the dish rack, which involves an interesting logistical problem, and I find it. To be, it's sort of like um, it, to, it, 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 that's that sort of thing. And so we, we don't want to go any further into that direction. It's uh, I don't want if to someone if someone were to arrange the dishes in the incorrect fashion, this would result in your 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 bafflement and 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 anxiety. No, I, I, I'm good at control. I'm since I'm writing a book about metacognition, among other topics, the ability to think about your own thoughts. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm the master of my own emotions. I have a, a four stage. Uh, process for mastering a when an emotion rears up and nearly causes me to do something irrational like destroy something tell I, us because uh, we could all do with this especially those of us on the i mean well the first step is silly you you just just breathe for a second and then you and then you identify the emotion 
and then you you describe it. You if it's if you're if it's just anger, you might describe it. You know, it's more just a silly dudgeon, or maybe it's right. To, and then you and then you and then you once you've identified it and described it with a and the richer your emotional vocabulary for describing your emotions, the the more emotional control you're going to have. There's a whole lot of research on this. You can Google it under the uh, rubric of emotional granularity. And and then you and then you think, well, you know, this emotion is in my consciousness, but it's not really, you know, am I going to identify it? You know, I have a representation of myself in my consciousness, and I have the representation of the emotion in my consciousness. And am I going to invite the emotion to be a guest in, in the self part of my consciousness? I don't think so. It's, it's there. I'm not going to try to suppress it. That's not a good strategy. But it's not, you know, it's not me, it's alien to me. And so, yeah, that's sort of the way I do it. Well, that so, sounds like meditation in some ways. That, that meditation requires you to accept that certain things will come up in your consciousness that, that, that right. might distract you when you examine them, but you then separate yourself from them and let them go. And another thought will come into your head, but it's that, it's that ability to hold them at least lightly in your hands without being totally committed to them with white knuckles, as it were. That's the key. Yeah, yeah. Are, are, do you meditate? I, I have, yes. Um, what, what style of meditation? Just simple, or? yeah, simple Vipassana. I, I went to insight meditation retreat, and that was, that was really helpful. I mean, very simple, very, okay. very simple. Just breathing, allowing your thoughts to arise, letting them go. Okay, mindfulness, where you focus on kind of your internal bodily processes, right, as I understand it. I mean, I, I, I learned when I was in high school, I took a, a transcendental meditation course. I, I was never a disciple of, remember the Maha? Yeah, the Maharishi Maha, Yogi, right? That was Mahesh his name. Yogi. Yeah, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, right. And, and, and they give you a, a mantra, yes. and, you're, and you're not allowed to tell anyone what your mantra is. And, yes. you, and you just focus on the mantra and relax for 15 minutes. So I, I still do that. And I... I discovered, you know, once the internet came into existence, you could Google your mantra. You could see what, you know, how they chose your mantra. They they gave my mantra to everyone of my age at that time, at that in the seventies. And um, and I also discovered I've been mispronouncing my mantra all these years. <laughs> which is really the, the, <laughs> what was the? Are you allowed to say if you say your mantra out loud? I, does it lose uh, its power? No, but then if something terrible happens to me right after this podcast, I'll. It'll look like karma. I'm afraid to to do it. Um, it's yeah. So it, it's kind of. I know I will. It's it's it's. I thought it was ing, like I n g, but a long i. But it was more like ang. It was more. It was almost two syllables. I think was the proper internal pronunciation. Because I um, did the transit. I did the TM thing also like 20 years ago, and I had uh, my what, own mantra too. What's your mantra? It was um hirim, I think. What that. This sounds like Yiddish. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a good mantra. <laughs> hirim, 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 okay. hirim, hirim. Oh, I yeah. think right, so there's mantras, but you have to pay for a mantra. You actually have to yeah, yeah. cough up money for it. That 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 was the moment when I thought, you know, emotional trappings. They, I remember at the end of when we would meditate for just a few minutes at the beginning of the, you know, you we would have maybe half dozen or maybe 10 meetings with the instructors before they would actually tell you the mantra and, you know, get you into the active meditation. And then afterwards, there, were, you would, there would be additional meetings to make sure you were on the road to cosmic consciousness, as they called it. And the so you would meditate for two or three minutes at the beginning 
of the meeting just to get into the proper frame of mind. And they, the meditation would be concluded with the words, Jai Guru Dev. And I guess Guru Dev was the teacher of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi or something like that. And so I, I, I didn't like the, 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 the mystical trappings of it. I like to think of it purely as a, as a, as a physiological, you know, it's a way of making your vagus nerve throb. It's, I suppose. it's sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, really, in, in, in some ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when we were first met, Jim, I was both a twink and kind of an activist. I mean, I was very openly gay in a way that people weren't at that point in time, particularly. I mean, I remember, even though it's very hard to explain, but I, I turned out that I, I was the only openly gay journalist in Washington when I came out, <laughs> to my surprise. How do you, when you think of, of, of that long 30-year journey, really, for homosexual men in America, Obviously, it's been an extraordinary shift. What are your thoughts about that? Do you miss the kind of gay male culture that we emerged into? Or you particularly had experience in, in the old village of the old days? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, was, I came to New York in, in 1978, and I, I, I had been a student at the University of Virginia. And, and I, I was actually, I had briefly been engaged to be married to a woman who was, became an English professor eventually. And so, but I, I had, I had had affairs with, with, you know, in high school with girls and boys and then in college. And, but then I decided that I, I was, you know, heterosexual enough that I would like to get married. But then we, we, I, when I came, we, we ended up, it didn't work out and we, and I came to New York and I was really excited to take up you know, the, 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 the gay life was very dangerous then. I mean, when, when I was at the University of Virginia, there was a gay student union and there, there were various sort of covert gay circles, some of them very elegant involving professors, art historians and so forth. And so I, I got a little taste of that. But I love the idea of coming to New York. You know, New York at the time was it, it, had, it had just nearly declared bankruptcy. It was falling apart. It was a it was a, a seedy, romantic, dangerous place. If you walk to the end of Christopher Street, which was the big, you know, the gay ghetto, the big gay neighborhood, which was like unlike anything that you know anywhere else in America except maybe San Francisco, you would see the um, the uh, remains of the elevated West Side Highway, which is just a, like a Roman ruin. I mean, trucks had actually fallen through the elevated part to the unelevated part, and it framed the Hudson River at, at the end of this long street of gay bars. And then, if you took a right. There would be a series of uh, S&M bars, and, and, and it was just the most, and that wasn't really my scene, but I found it fascinating and lurid and Dickensian and weird, and unlike anywhere else in the, you know, anything I'd seen. And every neighborhood had its local gay bar, but there, of course there was a great concentration of them in the village. But it was still, you know, it, it, it was still a little bit the love that dare not speak his name in a lot of new, and, 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 and I was always, and because of that, I had a slightly homophobic aspect to, to my, to my personality. And so now, you know, I romanticize all of that and I miss it. And now it's all been normalized thanks to people like you who've, 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 you know, done so much, you know, are responsible for so much social progress. But the, yeah, I'm, I'm still nostalgic for the, the, the bad old days, just like people are still nostalgic for, you know, the dangerous, falling apart, crime-ridden New York of the 70s when life was, you know. The thing different, well, I guess they're both were, it turns out, to be as lethal as each other because you also then were there present as the, the epidemic, the, the AIDS epidemic came in like some hideous, 
force of judgment upon all that. And that's also obviously must have been a huge, when, when that shifted, that hmm. must have affected you yeah, in, yeah. in some way. Were you, yeah, do you remember? My friends, half my friends died of AIDS. My boyfriend died of AIDS. And I had got out of that world just at the right point by, by sheer luck. So the, the, yeah, so all of my closest friends, you know, half of them uh, died of AIDS. And the, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I have anything interesting to, to say about that. But uh, but I do remember those. I remember, and, and I think we may have even met a, a couple of those places up on the West Side Highway. You could start at like the Lure. I think, did I ever see you in the Eagle? I must have seen you. Or the Spike. For me, I went as a tourist, really. I know you I, did. I, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to implicate yeah, you. I, in, I, I, I was in the kind of the, the preppy set. I used to wear a blue blazer, which is actually not very sexy, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the blue blazer at the at the spike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't. I my my you know my ideal was Studio Fifty Four. When I came to right. New York, the, the Studio Fifty Four was in High Feather. The Mud Club was going. So there was the the, the Mud Club was the great downtown scene. Studio Fifty Four was you know the great worldwide club scene. It was like nothing the world had ever seen because all of the glamorous, powerful worlds intersected there. You know, entertainment and and fashion and and. You know, you you would see the the you know the uh, Jimmy Carter's mother even, you know, and and Betty Ford and 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 Elizabeth Taylor was there every night, and and I that's how I met Andy Warhol and all of that, and and sort of people who were who were nobodies, young but stylish and, and reasonably good looking, could get in and mix in this world, and there were no people. That was before people had bodyguards, you know, celebrities and famous people traveled with a, re a retinue that gave them a cordon sanitaire from the rest of the world. And you could just meet these people. And they assumed if you were there, you must be interesting yourself. Maybe you were the young fashion star or something like that. Nothing like that exists as far as I know anymore. Um, and of course, there are so many fewer gay bars that nightlife has completely been uh, disappeared. At least it's, it's shrunk yeah. considerably. I mean, I remember those old leather bars where you couldn't get in if you weren't wearing black boots. If you had some sort of, if you had white socks, oh, yeah. you might be in trouble. They were very, very strict. And now, now they have that sort of like, mine shaft, particularly had a very elaborate code. No, no cologne. No mine no shaft. Yes, right. That's where Michel Foucault used to hang out. Is that my right? That's true. Yeah, and I yeah. discovered that all of my uh, heterosexual male friends visited the mine shaft just to see what it was like. And I never went there. I should have gone there just as an anthropologist. Yes, because, uh, uh, yeah, Leon. He's the Tyricon, as far as I can you know, tell. I don't, I don't know whether Leon was like, was, well, no, I don't, but he talks of going there and with Foucault, actually. I, I think Foucault was- I was going there with Foucault. Yeah. Oh, yes, no, just, just to see him get his balls nailed to the bar. <laughs> yeah, I'm like the, like the like the 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 great late Victorian figure Frank Harris, a friend of Oscar Wilde, said who was completely resolutely heterosexual, and said, "But but I I I, I would have done it with Shakespeare." <laughs> and Max Max Beerbohm drew, drew a caricature of Frank Harris uh, sort of <laughs> bending over with his trousers down, Steve <laughs> <with> Shakespeare. <laughs> so yeah, I would have gone to. But are you in any way, I mean, this, the, the whole LGBTQIA, the whole sort of endless alphabet now of different micro sexual identities, you're indifferent to all of that. In some yeah, ways, it, 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 is, yeah. it, I think 30, some, some ridiculous number, like 40% of Gen Z now identify as LGBT, with the vast majority of them 
basically being straight, but thinking occasionally of the opposite, of the same sex, calling themselves bisexual. In fact, they actually did a survey that showed the majority of the LGBT community, straight married couples. <laughs> so it comes a point at which, it comes a point at which, you know, success is, is, is maybe this is the price of success, the utter meaninglessness. Min, but it makes meaninglessness you, of it. It may, it, 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 it's like, you know, it was cool to be gay in Studio 54, and now the kids think it's cool to be gay, right? I mean, I, I get lots of, you know, I, I'm the, uh, the kids love me because they think, you know, that, that adds to my, Kind of the, the my existential richness, and uh, that's kind of wonderful. And uh, and I do. I have younger uh, friends in Brooklyn, uh, gay friends, and I sort of keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. And I'm fascinated at how it's evolved. And the, what's your the, impression of that? How has it evolved as you as you as you see it? Oh, it just seems much. I mean, it's much more sweetness and light than it used to be. I mean, that all of the 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 the, the darker elements that were not completely wholesome have. Uh, I mean, I think people, there's less lying and less deceit in, in relationships because it used to be that if you were gay, you had to, you know, there was a lot of deception involved and a lot of secrecy involved. And that, I think, had an eroding... Because you were hiding yourself from the, the rest of the world, which never held you yeah. accountable to anything. And therefore, but the usual the two-timing... The movie Sorry. about Alan Turing sort of, I mean, use that in kind of, kind of cheap way. This is, you know, a, the, the, the mandatory secrets that just going to eat away. So, but yeah, all of that is gone. And kids now announce to their parents that they're gay when they're, you know, 11 years old and, they're, and their mothers and fathers hug them. And, you know, there's none of the, you know, I, I have no son kind of melodrama, <laughs> I guess maybe on Staten Island but not in the rest of the world. So, but I guess that's all good. But. I guess that it's obviously good, right? I mean, that it, 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 although yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm a little worried that little gay boys and gay girls might think they're now the opposite gender as opposed to just being gay, the way that it's presented to them, their, their feelings. I think there's a certain amount of concern there, but I, 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 I obviously think in some ways it's 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 all all a plus. But I, I just think at some point it becomes ridiculous to call the LGBT community a community or measure it or ask its opinion if it's majority straight married couples. It just doesn't seem to make a huge amount of sense to me anymore. And 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 the fact that gay people are incredibly different than trans people and gay men and lesbians who also have extraordinarily different subcultures. We thought that 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 gay men and lesbians were natural enemies, right? Yeah. Uh, what do you mean it used to be thought? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry? What do you mean it used to be thought? I'm sorry. Go, go on. <laughs> the, um, what did uh, James Fenton say? I was writing in the TLS about a, a book on, on the evolution of gay culture or something. And one of the presuppositions of the book was that the gay men and lesbians should always be in a kind of state of warfare. And and nonplussed by this. He said, you know, what, what would we fight about? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, there's, they, I mean, there's so, it's, there's uh, almost, I mean, there's life forms. There's no like, overlap, are you saying? Right. I mean, I'm looking now out the window at the squirrels and the cardinals and under the bird feeder, and they don't even notice each other. They just go about looking for the seeds, and that's how, yeah, so I, I don't understand the idea of community, but it does, the, the rainbow flag, it makes me want to retch. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so... It always did, but now they've added. You've noticed they've they've added the brown stripe and a black stripe. Oh, I, what are the it's called? The, it's called the progress flag now because we had we needed to include 
black and brown people. So you had a black and brown stripes, even though it seemed to me to mis misunderstand the metaphor somewhat that we weren't actually protecting gays and green gays and yellow gays. We were just, the whole point was the rainbow itself represented everything. Right? Every, Is there a stripe for the log cabin people? The log cabin? No, but they do. They do have this kind of little triangle going into it now, which has uh, is a kind of. It looks like uh, it's like invading the the flag from the side, which has blue and pink and white, ah. which is the trans the trans flag. It's extraordinary. There are more flags now to designate micro sexualities than there are flags in the United Nations. I mean, it's I, in Provincetown every year. I'm just completely flummoxed by new variations of, of, of flag. It's all very sinister. The, the environment is full of new symbols that I don't understand. Like the, what is the, the Q and the, the identifier? It's a, it's a, a series of, of initials that's, that stand for where we go one, we go all. And you will see this on truck or, you know, blue lives, matter flags and other, I mean, that the meaning of that is obvious, but I discovered that a lot of people don't know what that means. They don't realize that it's a racism. And so I, the, the, the world now is, 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 is semiotically almost unintelligible to me. And, and I, the guy down the street uh, from where I am, I'm out on Long Island, put up a big flag in front of his house and I saw Biden and I thought, oh, that's really nice because I thought he was, he, was a Trumpy kind of guy. But then when the wind blew, I saw that it said, fuck Joe Biden and fuck you if you voted for Biden. And that's sort of... <laughs> um, that's 2022, right? That's where we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've actually, I've, uh, since during the pandemic, I've spent all my time out on Long Island. I'm in Suffolk County, which is a which was carried by Trump. And I've done a lot of outreach to Trumpy types trying to show that I respect them. And I, I, you know, I make a point of saying I force them to form a civil, a civil expression on their face when they say, how's it's going to me, you know? And, and so I, yeah, I'm, I'm doing uh, God's work. You're doing there. the work. Yeah. Yeah. By and, reaching uh, out to Trumpies. Yeah. You... And I, by the way, I, I actually, I, I, I find that people are more rational than you give them credit for when you try to elicit their reasons for supporting Trump. It's sort of like, you know, Maureen Dowd and her brother, her brother is a Trump supporter. And every once a year, she would write a column saying, you know, why my brother still supports Trump. And the, you know, the reasons were, 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 were plausible. And um, actually, uh, I think she invites her brother to write that column once a year. I think that's what happens. Now, I know um, you're an, you're an Oakshadian, which I consider to be the height of irrationality. But you know, in discourse with you, there are little glimmers of reason that I see in you. And I, I, that's very hard. I've never understood your affection for Oakshot. To me, Oakshot represents all that's evil about political philosophy. And, and John Rawls represents everything that's clear and true. And But they kind of late Rawls ends up sort of being Oakshot in a way, epistemologically. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, That's what I would say to that. That like, can, we can't well, raise well, the whole question of Oakshot. We, we, we we're going to wind up our conversation because okay. I know it sounds this like because we, we alluded to to Leo Strauss at the beginning and Harry Jaffa, and we're ending up with Oakshot. But honestly, you know, Harry Jaffa was, in, was I mean, he was brilliant in a way. I mean, I think the 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 the, the Civil War book is really good, but he was just completely bonkers. I mean, he's the most pathological homophobe imaginable. He was obsessed oh, with sodomy. Yeah. I mean, that was all he was writing about at the end. It was, it was really deranged. And there was that that whole homophobic subtext with Alan Bloom, which oh, was so really the great 
battle was Bloom and Jaffa. Oh, and, okay. and Jaffa brought in a lot of the you know, anti-gay stuff to kind of wound the old quid Bloom. Right, right. This it's very it's very layered. It's very layered, but I but please don't please Jeff. I'm not I'm not a Jeff. I have nothing to do with Jeff. The fact that you would think compare me with him. Okay, no, is there factional strife in the Oakshadian world as there is in the Straussian world? No, really, there really isn't. There's a whole. There's, it's but I think that's it's, it's just the sensibility of Oakshot. You know, it's a sensibility of conversation and diversity and curiosity and okay. skepticism that that I think is really the Oakshotian formula. What is the title of your forthcoming book? Living, <laughs> Living Theory and Practice. Huh. <laughs> Underwhelmed, aren't you? Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> virtually normal was taken. What's the other one? What, what, what other? What, what's the, the other one? Virtually normal was a great title. That's, that's, that was a really great title. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, I think the... the I think the title I have in my last book, which which you which you haven't read, but Out on a Limb is my collection of stuff. That was a pretty good title, I think. Right. I've read all the pieces as they came out. That's, and yes, I, that's and true, I, uh, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I, I do you have another big book in you? Uh, yes, I hope so. I am contracted for one. I am I want to write about Christianity and and my own the evolution of my own faith, as it were, over the over the years. And Make a case in a way for people to re-engage Christianity um, and and to look at it in a, in, a, in a new in a new way. I mean that's the that's the extraordinarily ambitious and ridiculously ambitious idea for the book. But it's something you could I can I can work on, and I've thought about obviously for a very long time. And it's semi semi autobiographical, but 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 also an attempt to understand what faith is now in twenty twenty two. What it actually. Can, how it can exist or what it can be. Um, and so no, one's done, no one's done a book like that in some time, a book that, 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 that makes a faith like yours intelligible to modern-day secular skeptics. I mean, I don't know anybody who's I, I, maybe two or it's three. really hard to do and, yeah. and without sounding bonkers. And the, that's the challenge, which is a great challenge. Yeah. And, and yeah, I wanted one title for it. It's funny how titles come into your head as a, a guide to what you want to write. I wanted to call it Sheer Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can better, see. I can see. Living theory and practice. Yeah. That's yeah, that's like you always see on, on 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 if you sit in the business section of a of a flight in America, the the, the businessmen are always reading mere Christianity. Yes, they are. Yes. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah they're, 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 especially yeah. in the South or anywhere. Mere Christianity it was a book that's hugely influential in evangelical America. Yeah, yeah. Still when is. you read it yeah. today, I don't know whether you've read it recently. It, it feels so dated to me in its in its in oh, really its, yeah. in its outlook and its. It's funny. I was also reading Seven Story. We were Seven Story Mountain by Merton. Man, does that feel dated? It's it's. There's something sort of very mid-century about mid-twentieth century about that. It's very very alien to today. Actually, when you read when you read it, who wrote "Mirror My God"? I'm not sure. Mr. Buckley, William Buckley, wrote that, and he was on Charlie Rose uh, talking about it. And Charlie Rose asked him, "But why do you believe in God? Do you actually?" the existence of God and, 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 and Buckley dodged that question. And I mean, that's a question you, I mean, I know that your religiosity is so highly evolved that it, 
it, it elides you know, questions of objective existence. But I would like you to help those of us who are still more literal minded to understand how you deal with, you know, I know that it's ridiculous to even think about a proof of the existence of God or to look for evidence of God's. I mean, the, the, the more cachet God is, the better God is on your account. And so I, I, you try to make that intelligible to those of us who are not blessed with this religious sensibility. That would be a, a great intellectual service. Thank you. I mean, that's, that is the, that's the goal. And, it's, and I think so that's why it kind of has to be a bit memoiristic, because it has to kind of explain yeah. it from the inside and how it emerged and how it evolved. I mean, when you were brought up the way I was, just God's existence was given. And it just and it sort of saturates the background of your mind and soul. And now plenty of my my brother and sister or whatever it, it may not be where I am still with mm -hmm. faith, but but for me it was I've never been able to get that out of my head. It's it's more of a negative thing. God's always around. You know uh, what drove it out of my head was uh, when I was in uh, high school. I uh, got B. F. Skinner's telephone number from the Cambridge Directory and, <laughs> called, and called him up. And he liked talking to me, and he was always a little squiffy, a little drunk. But he and he he's encouraged. He he asked me to call call him back, call him collect, and and we we talked about all of that. And that's and and I, you know, the idea that that we don't have free will, and that all of our behavior and choices and thoughts are determined by stimulus and uh, response laws, really completely swept away my. Orthodox religious beliefs. Yeah. And then, then I, I tried to recover them later on. And I wrote a piece in Commonweal. I'm sure you saw it. <laughs> about, <laughs> it was America. It was Commonweal. It, it brought Ross Duda, I believe his name is, and I, um, and, and a couple of other prominent. And he wrote why I stayed and I wrote why I left. And and I remembered, you know, the 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 nuns who taught me and the Franciscan monks who were in the monastery over the hill from where I grew up. And they had a profound influence and influence on me. And they seemed we could have really saintly in many cases. I was, you know, terribly molested, of course, but I, I now I have to go to buy my, my meta philosophy seminar, which yes, is I know you do. That's three hours. This has been so much fun. I doubt that any of it is, will be usable for a podcast. <laughs> a really good time. It has been wonderful to reconnect yeah. Jim. You're, you're the best. Thank you for your, uh, candor, wit, and rudeness. <laughs> and I'm glad we finally cleared up my position on race and IQ. I was really happy to go into that at great detail. And I'm glad to have your exoneration of all my motives and indeed your support of the conclusions that I have tentatively arrived at. Um, you were I'm most, I'm you most grateful. I'm most grateful, Jim. I'm your get that. out of jail free card. Thank you. Okay, I got to switch over to the other Zoom. Great yeah. to see you. We'll see all our listeners next week. Thanks for listening.